0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll be reading uh, verses 4 to 10 this morning. Hebrews 7, 4 to 10, but our focus will be verses 4 and 5. There it says Now observe how great this man to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils, and those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office. "...have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in the case uh, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on." and so to speak through abraham even levi who received tithes paid tithes for he was still in the loins of his father when melchizedek met him let's pray heavenly father lord as we consider our lord and savior jesus christ today lord we pray that we might be given his very mind lord that you might make known to us lord the very glory of christ that as we consider Melchizedek and Abraham and Levi and Aaron and all of these relationships and all of these persons and institutions. Lord, we pray that whatever glory and honor you have bestowed upon, Lord, these men in these offices, Lord, that ultimately they would point us to Jesus Christ. Lord, for what glory exists in the world apart from him? Lord, he is the source and the fount of whatever is illustrious, whatever is beautiful, Lord, whatever is honorable and dignified in your sight. So, Father, we pray that today you might lead us, as it were, by the hand, step by step, to see the very glory of Christ, and that in seeing him, Lord, you might conform us, Lord, to his image from one degree of glory to another until that day in which we see him face to face and in which we are made like him. So, Lord, be with us and bless us today. Sanctify us by the truth. Lord, your word is truth, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we're in this chapter where the apostle is uh, proving the superiority of the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek over and above the priesthood established in the law of Moses according to the order of Aaron. The point being to teach these Hebrew Christians and to teach all Christians that the person in priesthood of Jesus Christ is much to be desired and preferred to any other priesthood that has ever existed in this world, whether that priesthood was legitimately established by God or whether that is some illegitimate priesthood established by the traditions of men. To do this, he's bringing forward certain truths that were laid down in the text of Genesis 14 concerning Melchizedek, implications regarding his person and implications regarding his interaction in the relationship with Abraham. Hebrews 7, 1 to 3 devoted uh, was devoted to bringing forth these various truths concerning him. And in those verses, we saw that Melchizedek was king of Salem. He was priest of Most High God. He was the one who met Abraham while Abraham was returning from the slaughter of the kings. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Melchizedek received from Abraham a tithe of all the spoils. Melchizedek was referred to as king of righteousness and king of peace. And we saw that he was without father or mother or genealogy or beginning of days or end of lives or end of his life, right? None of these things are revealed concerning him in terms of his beginning, his end, his father, his mother, his genealogy, but all of this is shrouded in much mystery. Now, all of this was done intentionally by the Lord in order that Melchizedek might serve as a very lively and illustrious type of Jesus Christ in his priesthood. And more than anyone else in the Old Testament, Melchizedek more closely and accurately represents the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that is why it says of him that in this way, he was made like the son of God. His purpose was to picture Jesus Christ. His dignity, his honor, his exaltation, his superiority to Abraham is rooted in this reality, namely that in him, we have this preeminent type of Christ revealed in the Old Testament. And it was of no coincidence or accident that God raised him up during that generation, during the time of Abraham, and that God prompted him during that time to meet him at this exact time and season of his life. And there are major implications regarding these events, implications that shape the way that we view Jesus Christ in relationship to Aaron, that shape the way that we view the relationship of the old covenant to the new covenant, right? That shape the way that we view the worship of God under the priesthood of Aaron in contrast to the worship of God under the priesthood of Jesus Christ. This is what he's dealing with with in, in the entire book of Hebrews. What is the relationship of these things? And how are we to understand them in light of the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? So then, having brought forward these many truths concerning Melchizedek, now he begins to show what these things mean as they are related to Abraham and to Levi and to Aaron and ultimately to Jesus Christ. And that is his goal is to prove and to show without any refutation the superiority of the priesthood of Christ to the priesthood of Aaron. So let's pick up then in Hebrews 7 verse 4. Hebrews 7 verse 4. There it says, Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest, Spoils. Here he begins by saying, Now observe. Now observe. The apostle has brought forward all of these truths about Melchizedek. Now he is calling on us to observe these things, to think deeply about them, to ponder them, to diligently inquire and consider and contemplate what is the significance of these things? What do these things mean concerning the person of Melchizedek in relationship to Abraham? And what is its significance as it relates and informs us concerning the person and work of Christ. And in this, we are reminded that the mysteries of the gospel, these require careful observation. We must diligently attend to these truths. And this refrain is repeated. We've already seen it in Hebrews. And it's repeated throughout the need for us to consider, to think about, to contemplate the realities that he is bringing forward to us. Hebrews chapter three, verse one. Hebrews three, verse one. There he said, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. He wants us to consider who he is. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Then in chapter 10, in chapter 10, verse 23. Chapter 10, 23. Says, let us hold fast to our confession, uh, to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Let us consider these things. Let us think about them. Let us meditate on it. Let us contemplate what it means to stir one another up toward love and good deeds. Also, chapter 12, verse 3. He says, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider who Christ is, consider what he did, and what are those implications of what he did concerning your own life and the way that you are called to live now in faithfulness to him. These are truths that require careful observation in order to grasp their significance and to understand their importance as it relates to our salvation. And we know that there are some things that are hard or that are difficult to understand. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 18, there the Apostle Peter, commending the Apostle Paul, he says that some of his writings are hard, they are difficult to understand. That there are things that are laid down there that are more difficult to understand. Some things have this degree of difficulty to them. Some truths are plain, they are simple, they are easy to understand. Other truths are more difficult, they are harder. One arrives at their significance with much more diligence and much more difficulty. And this is the way the scriptures are and this is the way the gospel of Jesus Christ is. The gospel has been compared to a river that is shallow enough for the lamb to wade, yet deep enough for elephants to swim in, right? This is the nature of the Bible, so that the truths that are there are simple enough that even a child is able to understand them. Yet they are also deep enough and complex enough that even the wisest among us has to contemplate and look into these things and that none of us will ever exhaust the depths of the wisdom that is found in the Word of God. And this is the nature of Scripture. And in Hebrews chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and 10, the, this is the deep end of the pool, right? These are the deep waters in which we find ourselves, the deep things of God, the mysteries of the wisdom of God hidden in the person of Jesus Christ. And it takes diligence. It takes careful consideration of these things and their implications concerning his person and his work. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11 says, As to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The prophets made careful searches and inquiries into the things of God, into the mysteries of salvation, and we are called to follow their example we must diligently give our minds to understand the gospel, to grasp a greater depth of the mysteries of of salvation, right? We are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's not going to happen accidentally. It's not going to happen haphazardly. It's not going to happen carelessly, but rather through intentional study and meditation and prayer of the things of God which explains why in the churches today, it is so often the case that many remain in a state of infancy because they are not diligently applying their mind to the truths of God. There are few who are seeking it as hidden treasure. But we must do this, right? Three things that we must do in relationship to the mysteries of God. First, we must believe that our spiritual life is dependent upon a knowledge of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our spiritual vitality, our spiritual life, both at its founding and in its sustaining, is contingent upon knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is our life. We need more wisdom we need more knowledge, we need more understanding of Him. Secondly, we must believe that our greatest joy and delight in this life and in the life to come is found in understanding more and more the greatness of our salvation. This is what Bruce read this morning from Psalm 84, why he would rather uh, be a doorkeeper in the household of God. He wants to be there in the courts of God. He wants to think about and meditate upon the glories of salvation. What will heaven be but an unfolding to us of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God? And what greater joy can we have in this life than a fuller understanding of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And then thirdly, we must believe that if we seek for Christ in the scriptures, we will find him. If we seek, we will find. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened up to you. If we give ourselves to the means appointed by God to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, humble prayer, meditation, study concerning his person and work, will our labor be in vain? No, it will never be in vain, but God will richly reward us for the pursuit of such things. God will open up to us the treasures of his wisdom and he will give to us a fuller and a greater understanding of Christ. But this requires us to diligently seek these things, to seek it as hidden treasure, to observe our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here in Hebrews chapter seven, verse four, what are we to observe? Well, notice what he says. Now observe, how great this man was. He wants us to see how great this man was. And here in the context, we're talking about Melchizedek. How great is Melchizedek? This observation is not so that we would be content to gaze on the beauty and grandeur and the greatness and the dignity of Melchizedek, but that by observing Melchizedek, By understanding who he is, in a consideration of his greatness, we might gain some new insight, some new apprehension of the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the end and the purpose of the pursuit of all wisdom and knowledge. Of all the diligent meditation of the things of God is for the purpose of gaining a vision of the glory of Christ. That we might see Christ more clearly. That we might know more and more and more our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what the apostle desired in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, he wanted to know Christ. That was the goal of his Christian life, of everything, was to understand and to know him more. Philippians 3, 7 to 11. Philippians 3, 7. He says, For whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. It may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to him in his death. There, that I may know him. He wants to know. Christ, He wants to understand and to see more the significance, and he wants his own life to communicate and conform and to reveal the very glory of Christ in these ways. And in this way, both our duty and our reward are bound up together. For what greater duty can we undertake than to seriously meditate upon the person and work of Christ? And what is the reward for fulfilling such duties? Is it not that God grants to us a greater understanding of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Christ himself is the prize that we are seeking, right? A greater vision of the Lord. He is the pearl of great price, right? Jesus is the hidden treasure in God's goodness to us in seeing, in chiefly him revealing to us more and more and more of the glory of his son. Right, just as we mentioned earlier from John 17, 3, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, that eternal blessed life that we will experience in the life to come. Chiefly, the joys of that life pertain to a knowledge of God, to an understanding of who God is, to know God as we have been known. And how do we come to know the true and living God? Only through his son, Jesus Christ. That is why he combines these together, to know him and to know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We also remember in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, there it says, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. The consummation of our salvation is realized when we see Christ, when we see him as he is, when our eyes look upon him, when we gaze upon Christ, then we will be glorified, we will be transformed into his image. Well, if that is the consummation of our salvation, is when we see Christ face to face, then the advancement of our salvation in this life from one degree of glory to another, comes by seeing Christ by faith, having a greater faith, a greater understanding of Christ by faith, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what we should seek. And that is the pursuit, the purpose of the pursuit of all divine wisdom and knowledge is to know Christ better. Why does Melchizedek exist in the scriptures? What is His purpose. Well, his greatness here is not seen in regards to his wealth, right? When he's telling us, consider how great this man was. He's not drawing our attention to his wealth. He's not drawing our attention to the vastness of his kingdom. He's not drawing our attention to the might and power of his army. He's not drawing our attention to the stateliness of his palace, to his royal robes, or to the crown that sits upon his head. The greatness of Melchizedek is seen in how it is that he represents Jesus Christ. It is in his relationship to Jesus Christ that he is great, that he is preeminent as a type of Christ, as a reflection to us of the glory of Christ. And this is true of any of us as well. Whatever there is of glory in us, whatever there is of honor and dignity before God, it is always and only in relationship to Jesus Christ. Because in ourselves, in our sinful state, there is no glory, there is no dignity, there is no honor that is found among men. There's only sin and that which is detestable to God. So whatever there is in us that is pleasing to the sight of God is what is in us by our Lord Jesus Christ. It is always in relationship to Jesus Christ. And this is as the apostle says in 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 10 and 11. It says, Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. The life of Jesus Christ. This is what is being manifested in his flesh. This is what he wants people to see. He wants people to see him in his relationship to Jesus Christ. And this was true of Melchizedek. This was true of the Apostle Paul. And this is always the case. Whatever dignity, whatever honor, whatever glory God confers upon any man, it is always for the purpose of glorifying his son, Jesus Christ, of putting forward Jesus Christ and displaying his glory to us. And this is the problem. This is where the Jewish people failed. They were content to glory in Abraham. To cling to Abraham, and in their clinging to him and his glory, they failed to come to Christ. They failed to see the glory of Christ. And this they did with many persons and many institutions from the Old Testament. That's the problem he's addressing in the book of Hebrews. Abraham, Moses, Aaron, the temple, the priesthood, the worship of God there, the ordinances instituted by God in the Old Covenant... All of these things received a measure of dignity, of honor, of glory from God. Just as the moon receives light, it receives some glory and honor in its reflection of the sun. So all of these institutions and all of these persons were given a degree of glory from God, right? They were imparted with these things. He placed an element of glory in these things, but for what purpose? What is the purpose of the glory of Abraham? What is the purpose of the glory of Melchizedek? What is the purpose of the dignity and honor that God placed in the temple and in the instruments there used for the worship of God? Was it not that he might lead his people by the hand, step by step to the glory of Christ and that that is where their faith would find its final resting place in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ? The glory found in Melchizedek, the glory found in Abraham and Moses and Aaron, the glory found in the temple and its worship, all of this was given to them for the point of pointing people to the glory of Christ, not so that they would be content to gaze at the lesser glory of Abraham or be content to gaze. "...and be satisfied with the lesser glory of the temple, but that they might long for and yearn and seek the consolation of Israel, that they might long for the revealing of the Son of glory." They were like men on a journey, led by the light of the moon, led by these lesser glories, these lesser lights, making their way in faithfulness to God. But when the sun rises, what happens to the glory of the moon? It fades away, it goes away, it fails in comparison to the glory of the Son. Yet, with His own people, to whom these things were entrusted, to whom these things were given, when the Son of glory came to Him, when the fount of glory was revealed to them, He who was himself the source of the glory of Abraham, the source of the glory of Moses, the source of the glory of Aaron and his priesthood and the temple. When he came into the world, they refused to bask in his light. They rejected his glory and were content to rest upon these lesser things. This is why he says in John 12, 36. John 12, 36. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light. He is the light of the world. He is the only true light of the world, the light of the world that gives light to all men. And this is where the Hebrew Christians are failing. They must be undeceived in these matters, because they cannot be content to rest in the glory of Abraham, or the glory of the Aaronic priesthood, or the glory of the temple, These lesser glories must give way to the greater glory who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just again, as when the sun rises, the glory of the sun fades away, right? We're no longer to bask in the dim light of the moon whenever the sun comes out in all of its glory. And so it is in the Christian life as well. In terms of the revelation of God and the unfolding of this great redemption and salvation, and the knowledge of God seen in the person of Christ, when the sun arises, then these lesser things need to be done away with. They need to fade, and they're being ready to be abolished. We must always see these things in relation to Christ. We must see Abraham. We must see Aaron in their relationship to Christ. And that's why he wants them to observe how great Melchizedek was. For his dignity and honor is seen in how he represents Christ and how it is that he serves as a type of Christ, right? But in this relationship between the moon and the sun, right? Between the type and the anti-type, right? Between the symbol and the fulfillment, the fulfillment always has the greater superiority. The greater glory always resides in the fulfillment, Christ is superior to Melchizedek, right? Because Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He is a symbol of Christ, but Christ is the realization, right? He is the fulfillment. He is greater than Melchizedek, but Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and Abraham is greater than Aaron. So the progression of superiority that is laid out for us in Hebrews chapter seven is Christ. Has the greatest glory, then Melchizedek has a lesser glory than Christ, then Abraham has a lesser glory than Melchizedek, then Aaron has a lesser glory than Abraham. So then, what does this say about the relationship between the priesthood of Jesus Christ and the priesthood of Aaron? Must it not be far superior, the priesthood of Christ, in every way, to the priesthood of Aaron? since they are separated by so many degrees of glory and honor? So why would one be content to go to Aaron when someone far greater than Aaron, far superior to Aaron, when a priesthood that exceeds his in every way, shape, and form, when the blessings and benefits of this priesthood far outweigh any benefit that the people ever received from Aaron? So why would you be content to go to Aaron and desire to continue going to Aaron when Christ has arisen as the true and great high priest over the household of God. Only if you're not reading the Bible correctly. Only if you have a false interpretation, a false hermeneutic of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is what he is proving here. Now, the proof of Melchizedek's greatness seen in relationship to Abraham. Well, first, he points out that this is who Melchizedek had his conference with, right? Notice there in verse 4, how great this man was to whom Abraham. Melchizedek's interaction on earth with men, right? The only thing recorded in his interaction on earth with men is he interacted with Abraham, right? That is who he met with. And Abraham is the father of the entire Jewish nation, He is the singular root from which all of Israel springs from. The man chosen by God, selected by God, from which the nation originated. The nation separated from all other nations of the earth. Melchizedek did not interact with Jacob. He didn't interact with Joseph. He didn't interact with David. He didn't interact with any other of Abraham's descendants. But rather, he interacted with the original patriarch, right? The original root of this nation. And he further emphasizes this in the second point, which says Abraham, the patriarch, right? Abraham is referred to as the patriarch. And the way it's being used here is being used in a way that is exclusive to Abraham. In this regard, he stands alone as the patriarch of the nation Israel. Now, the Bible does refer to other men as patriarchs, right? Such as Isaac, such as Jacob, such as the 12 sons of Jacob. These are all regarded as patriarchs of the nation. And in some places, they are put there in relationship alongside of Abraham. But in terms of beginning, in terms of the original root, Abraham is the sole patriarch of Israel. Isaac is a patriarch, Jacob is a patriarch, but Abraham is the patriarch of the nation Israel, the patriarch from which all other patriarchs originate. They all came from him. So he occupies then among the nation this place of highest honor. No one from Israel can be greater than Abraham. None of his merely physical descendants can surpass Abraham in terms of glory, in terms of honor, in terms of rank. The father is greater than the son in this regard. And this is true in relationship to Abraham. And that is a key point in the the argument that he's making here. So Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons, Moses, Aaron, David, all of them must be inferior to him. And that's why in John chapter eight, In John chapter 8, Jesus presses this point with his opponents, with the Jews. And they are operating under this assumption that no one can be greater than Abraham. None, None of Abraham's physical descendants can be greater than Abraham. And if Jesus was merely human, he would not have been greater than Abraham. But Jesus is greater than Abraham, and why is he greater than him? because he was not merely a man. He is also the son of God. And before Abraham existed, Jesus existed. So he actually outranks him. He was superior to him in that way. John eight forty eight. John eight forty eight. The Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? There, they understand the implications of what Jesus is saying. When Jesus is claiming to have power over death, that whoever keeps his word will not die, they understand that that is a very great power. And this is a power that Abraham did not possess because what happened to Abraham? He died, right? He died, but Jesus is saying, if you keep my word, you'll never die. And they put two and two together and say, surely you're not greater than our father, Abraham, because you're claiming to possess a power that Abraham clearly did not possess. Who do you make yourself out to be? They go back to Abraham as this patriarch, this one of highest rank here in the nation of Israel, and they're questioning Jesus because he, being a descendant of Abraham, being one of his sons, is claiming a superiority to him. Then notice as well in Hebrews 7:4 that Abraham also gave one tenth of the choicest spoils to Melchizedek. Again, showing clearly that not only was Melchizedek superior to Abraham, but Abraham recognized this as well. Abraham paid homage to God through Melchizedek. He recognized and rightly responded to this. And no one had to force him to do this. God did not have to come down and browbeat him to a humble Abraham. Abraham knew his place. He knew his rank in relation to Melchizedek, and he rightfully, willingly, joyfully submitted himself to him by paying to him this tithe. Though Abraham was a man of very high rank and honor, he still performed his duty to God toward his superior. He gave respect to whom respect was due. He gave honor to whom honor was due, and we honor those who are above us in this way. And it is serving as a reminder to us that if even a man like Abraham, the patriarch of the nation of Israel, the father of the faith, endowed with such glory and honor, was not himself exempted from the most basic of duties to God. And when those duties presented themselves to him, he gladly and willingly submitted himself to God. The highest of privileges cannot exempt any man from the lowest of duties. Romans 13, eight says, owe no one anything except to love one another. Whatever love obliges us to perform, either towards God or toward our fellow man, toward our neighbor, toward the household of faith. All believers, even if that believer is the king himself, are obligated before God, required to fulfill whatever debt love requires of them. And this is no more clearly seen than in John chapter 13. Because though Abraham was a man of high honor and high rank, he was nothing compared to Jesus Christ. Yet, When Jesus, the duty to love his own, to serve his own disciples was presented to him, he did not resist, though he was a man of great rank and privilege. John 13, verse 11. There it says, uh, For he knew the one who was going to betray him For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Actually, sorry, pick up in verse five. John 13, verse five. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head as well. But Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was going to betray him. And for this reason, he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example so that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed If you do them there in terms of Lord and teacher, Jesus is the only Lord and only true teacher of the church for all generations. He and he alone possesses this rank of highest honor in the church. Yet the supreme true only and one Lord and teacher of the church humbled himself, stooped down to wash the feet of his own disciples though he was a man of high rank, far higher than any of us possess, yet whenever even the lowliest of duties was presented to him, he joyfully and gladly fulfilled whatever love obliged him to do. And so it ought to be with us as well. We ought to do all that God calls us to do. Here then, in Hebrews 7, 4, this consideration of the greatness of Melchizedek. Seen in relationship to Abraham, the patriarch, who paid a tithe to him. Now verse 5, Hebrews 7, 5. And those indeed are the sons of Levi, who receive the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. Here he ties this connection together. From Christ to Melchizedek, from Melchizedek to Abraham, from Abraham to Levi. What is the relationship between the priesthood of Jesus Christ to the priesthood of Aaron? What does this tithe teach us about the superiority of Jesus Christ's priesthood? Well, first notice here in verse five, who are we talking about? The sons of Levi who received the priest office. We know under the old covenant established there under Moses by God, the priesthood came from this tribe. They came from the tribe of Levi. Every Israelite knows this to be the case. Everyone, right? Even this would be taught to them in their childhood. They knew and understood these distinctions, these delineations, that the office of priest was confined to the tribe of Levi in that those men from other tribes could not take this office. They were excluded because it was given to the tribe of Levi. Notice, secondly, these priests from the tribe of Levi have a commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, a tithe from the people. Because of this office conferred to them, they are elevated to a position of honor, of dignity above their brothers. And their brothers show this distinction, they show their respect, and they honor this distinction of this office and its institution by giving to the priest a tithe. This also clearly known and received among the Israelites. They knew that the priest did not pay tithes to the people, but the people pay tithes to the priest, right? There is this relationship that is not equal or the same. They are to perform an action toward the priest and the priest do not perform that action toward them. And in this way, they are showing, they're giving proper respect and honor to this office that God has raised up from among the tribe of Levi. Then thirdly, who are the people who pay tithes to the priest? They are their brethren, although they are descended from Abraham. It is their brothers who are paying the tithe to them. One brother, one Israelite, paying a tithe to another brother, to another Israelite. One brother, one Israelite, deferring to another. One brother rising up in honor with this office over and above his brethren. The priests were not receiving tithes from foreigners, from strangers from aliens, but rather they were receiving it from their brothers according to the law who share a common heritage and a common lineage to Abraham. An Israelite from the tribe of Judah or from the tribe of Benjamin or from the tribe of Asher or from any of the other tribes, right? That Israelite is every bit as much a child of Abraham as an Israelite from the tribe of Levi. They have an equal interest, an equal share in a relationship to Abraham. They all have a common lineage from the patriarch. All of them have a common, equal, shared interest in the privileges and in the blessings conferred to Abraham. Yet though there is this common bond between them, one brother is obligated by the law to pay tithes, to another brother, to one who in some regards is his equal, but in this regard, he is superior to him. And what makes the one brother superior to the other? What is the office that elevates him in this way? It's the office of priest. He is a priest, and this is why they are obligated to pay the tithe to him. It is the office of priest. "...that made this distinction among the brethren, though all of them were descended from Abraham." And again, all the Israelites know and understand and recognize these things. They all know that God is the one who has ordained the office of priest. They all know that there is a distinction made among the brethren according to this office. They all know it is their duty to show proper honor and respect according to the law to those who serve in the office of priest. And this distinction that every rational thinking Israelite knows and understands, who else understood that distinction? Their father, Abraham. Abraham knew and understood this distinction. He knew his proper place in relationship to Melchizedek, and he gave proper honor and respect to him by paying the tithe to Melchizedek. And in doing so, he establishes for all generations the superiority of Melchizedek over everyone who comes from his loins, including who? Including Levi and including Aaron and the priests that descend from Aaron. So it should be no surprise. It should not be some insurmountable obstacle for the Jews to set aside the priesthood of Aaron for the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek that has been established in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus says, If you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. If you are his children, then why do you not behave like Abraham? Abraham didn't want to kill Jesus. Abraham longed for the revealing of his day. He rejoiced in the revealing of his day. And if Abraham the patriarch could humble himself and pay homage to Melchizedek, who is merely a type of Christ, then surely it is not unreasonable and beyond expectation to expect his children to humble themselves and pay homage to Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of that role. That is the point he is making. Your superior in rank paid homage to one who is inferior to the one that we're telling you to pay homage to, and yet you refuse to do so, but you claim to be children of Abraham But if you are his children, then why aren't you behaving like him? Why are you not walking in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham? This is the point he's drawing forward. Look at this connection between these persons, between Abraham and Melchizedek. See the implications of this. You know these things to be true in your own context, in your own nation. Why are you not putting two plus two together and coming to the right answer? This is what he's laying out for them so that they might see the glory of Christ and desire and prefer his priesthood to anything that was established there in the Old Covenant with Aaron and with that Levitical priesthood. And that is what we'll continue looking at in the upcoming weeks. But before we do, one last point of application in, re- in relationship to these things, right? In relationship to this distinction that was brought forward in Israel among the brethren, though all of them were descended from Abraham. And we must see in this and understand that God can and God will in the church give dignity, give preeminence among men who otherwise are equal. It is Christ's prerogative as Lord of the church to raise up whomever he will raise up. Even among those who have a common interest in salvation, even among those who are co-equal heirs with Christ, who are all equally sons of God, God can make distinctions among men, and he does so still even in the church. Isn't that what he did amongst the Israelites? Right? Although they were all commonly children of Abraham, and there was this common descent of them all, and they all in one regard had an equal share in the promises— the priests were exalted above their brethren. They were equally children, equal interest, yet these were given a dignity and honor that their brethren did not possess. For only the priests could serve in that office. Their brothers had no right. None of the other tribes could take up the honor of priest, and especially of high priest. And how did the priest in Israel receive this honor? How did it come upon them? Did they arm wrestle the other tribes and they were stronger than the rest and therefore it was given to them? Did they run a marathon? Rock, paper, scissors maybe. Yeah, that's always a good way to settle a debate. You could do a thumb war something like that. Is that the way that they made this distinction? They didn't even draw lots in order to make this distinction, though in other places in the Bible that is used to make a distinction between one man and another. How did they receive it? Well, it told us in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 4. No one takes the honor for himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. God gave it to Aaron and he didn't give it to anyone else. God has the right to do that. Can Aaron boast because he has received this? No, because there's nothing different about him than anyone else. Can the others murmur and complain because they haven't received it? No, Can God not do what he wants with his own gifts, with his own possessions? If he wants to give one man the priesthood and not give it to the other man, God can do whatever he pleases. And so it is in the church as well. We all have a common faith in Christ. And that common faith in Christ gives all of us an equal interest in the blessings of salvation. Yet in this common bond, it is God's prerogative to make distinctions and differences in the church and these, I think, are threefold in nature. First, he makes distinctions in relationship to degrees of grace. Though all believers have an interest in the same grace, some believers are given a greater measure or a greater degree of grace than another, and this is according to the will of God. One star shines brighter than another star, and so in the church, one saint may shine more brightly according to the grace of God given to him than does another saint. Sometimes this is in relation to our maturity. One has been a believer for many years. One has been a believer for only a year. But at other times, this is in relationship to our progression, that there may be two men and both of them have been Christians for 20 years, yet one is more advanced in his Christian life than the other. One displays more of the fruits of the Spirit and there's more of the grace of God evident in his life than the other. And who makes that distinction among men? It ultimately comes from God. And this is what the Apostle Paul recognized in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, he recognizes that in relationship to the other apostles, he worked harder than the rest of them. God was using him in a degree and in a way that surpassed even the other apostles. But where did this distinction come from? What was it rooted in? Notice 1 Corinthians fifteen nine to 11. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. In some regards, he says, I'm the least of the apostles, not even fit to be called one because of his former life in Judaism and because he was a persecutor of the church. Yet in other regards, he surpassed all of them because he labored harder than the rest. But where did that come from? It didn't originate in him. It came from the grace of God. And in one regard, Certainly the Apostle Paul is more preeminent than the rest because who wrote the majority of the New Testament? The Apostle Paul did. And who gave that to him? Jesus Christ did. Jesus did not give all of the apostles an equal share in the writing of the New Testament scriptures. He gave more of that to the Apostle Paul than to any of the rest. And why did God give it to Paul and not Peter? Why to Paul and not uh, Some of the others, Matthew or or John or any of the others, God can do whatever he wants. It is his will and his prerogative to raise one man up and to use him in this way according to his grace than he does with another. God can do this according to his own pleasure. Those who are weak should not despond, they should not faint, they should not despair, but should rejoice that they are children of God that they are heirs of eternal life. Those who are weak should not be envious of those who are strong, but should rejoice in the grace of God given to their brother. They should be content with what God has allotted to them and then submit to the will of God. Now, of course, those who are weak should never use their weakness as a means or an excuse to be lazy or to be slothful in their Christian life. Those who are strong should not be arrogant and boast, but ought to be humbled by a sense of their own unworthiness. For whatever they've received in terms of grace did not come and did not originate with them, and is not because of anything that God saw in them, but rather it came from God. So they should give glory to God and they should deal with patience, with humility toward their weaker brethren. So there is this distinction in relation to degrees of grace. Secondly, there is a distinction in the church in relationship to spiritual gifts. Not everyone in the church has the same spiritual gift, but gifts are distributed according to the will of the Holy Spirit of God. And some gifts have more outward honor or outward dignity than others. This is the way it is. Some are more honorable, just as in the body, in our natural body, some members of the body have more honor and dignity than other members of the body. And who makes this distinction? Who is the one that distributes the gifts into the church according to his own will? It is the Holy Spirit without any regard to any man. He gives and he equips as he sees fit and according to his own pleasure. And if we receive one gift and not the other, we should not be envious. And if we have a more honorable gift and not one of those that are less then we shouldn't be boastful and proud over and against our brother. Romans twelve three to eight. Because whatever gift we've received is not for our own purpose and it's not for our own glory, but it's for the mutual edification of the church and for the glorifying of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 12, verse three. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think and to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. God allots to each a measure of faith. And he doesn't say that measure is the exact same measure. He may give to one a greater measure of faith, and he may give to another a lesser measure of faith. Verse 4, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. There, the gifts differ according to grace, right? There are differences in these things according to grace and according to the will of God. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy in accordance to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So there, some get one, is, are given one gift, some are given another. And some gifts are more prominent than others, just as some parts of the body are more prominent than other members of the body. Again, those with the lesser gifts should not be envious of those with the greater gifts, and those with the greater should not be proud for any gift that we get is more than we deserve. None of us deserve anything from God. None of us deserve to have any measure of the Spirit in us. We all deserve to go to hell. So if the Spirit has given us anything, that's better than what we deserve. So we ought to rejoice in that fact and be grateful for what God has done for us. And none of these things are for our own glory, but for the benefit of our brothers in Christ and for the glory of the Lord. And then lastly, there is a distinction In the church, in relationship to office, God does not call all men equally to the office of elder teacher nor to the office of deacon, but only some within the church. We know from the pastoral epistles that these are exclusive to the men only. So, already half of the body, assuming that there's a general relationship there to men and women, Half of the body is already excluded from serving in the office of elder teacher or serving in the office of deacon. And then even among the men, not all men are called to be elders and teachers, and not all men are qualified and called to be deacons. But some men are called to be elders and teachers, and some men are called to be deacons. And this dignity that accompanies these offices has been given by God, right? God is the one who has placed this dignity there, right? It is seen in these things, especially in, of course, the teaching of the Bible, because you are publicly taking the word of God and teaching and explaining these things. And there is an honor that accompanies that office. It says in 1 Timothy 3.1, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. It is a fine, it is a noble, it is a good task because you are being used to open up the word of God and to instruct the people in the faith for the building up of the body of Christ. We should not despise these offices that God establishes in the church. And if we are not able to attain to one of these, then we should be content with what God has given to us. And yet over the course of history, over the history of the church, so often we see that these offices are brought into contempt there in the body of Christ amongst those who claim to be Christians. And we see that even back in the Old Testament with the office of priest, because it was very quickly that Korah and those, the rabble that was with him rose up in opposition of Aaron because they were not content with their own station. They were not happy that God gave this office to Aaron and that he did not give that office to them. And in that, it was a very evil and wicked thing because they were not humbling themselves before the Lord. So in this way then, God makes these distinctions. And he does that intentionally so that in the church... We have to live in harmony with one another. We have to love, we have to care, we have to be humble in the way that we interact with each other. We have to seek unity, But right? There's never going to be an equal administration of faith, of grace, of gifts, of offices in the church so that every single person is on the identical same level. There are always going to be these distinctions that exist within the church so that we have to live and practice our Christian faith toward one another by exercising all of the virtues of love in the body of Christ. So then let us seek these things and pursue them and be like our father Abraham. Abraham knew how to give proper honor and respect, and this he did when he paid his tithe to Melchizedek. And we ought to give proper honor and respect Primarily, ultimately, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but then also toward one another within the body of Christ. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. Lord, for the, the word that you have given to us, Lord, the soundness, the, Lord, the consistency, Lord, even this so very clear, logical progression that the apostle is making, concerning Christ and Melchizedek and Abraham and Aaron. Lord, and in this we see so clearly that there is no greater glory that has ever existed or will ever exist than your glory that is seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, this is the glory that we long for. This is the light that we are drawn to and that we want to bask in. And Father, we pray that you would daily give to us a greater understanding, Lord, of the love that we have from you seen in the person and work of Christ. Lord, that we might know the depths of these things and that we might see how great a salvation he has accomplished and brought about for us. Lord, we know that in this life, we, we know but just a, a part Lord, such a small measure, Lord, of your wisdom and of your understanding. Lord, we've only begun, Lord, to understand these things. Lord, just as Moses there on the mountain saw just a vision of your backside. So, Lord, we also understand that in this life we know in part. But in the life to come, we will know fully, even as we are fully known. Lord, may this give us humility, Lord, knowing that we have such a propensity toward arrogance, toward haughtiness, to think that we have all knowledge and understanding. Lord, when in reality we've only begun to understand the very elementary truths concerning Christ and your wisdom that has been hidden in him. But Lord, we desire more understanding, Lord, more knowledge, and we recognize our own weaknesses, Lord, our own frailties, that we cannot even begin, Lord, to understand anything about Christ unless you teach us. Lord, these are spiritual truths and they can only be understood by your spirit and they can only be taught by him in the inner man. So Father, we pray that you might teach us, that you might be our instructor and our guide. Lord, that we might desire christ and his glory and his beauty lord the the pleasures that are found in him lord may those things be more real to us more more desirous of us than all of the wealth and riches of this world lord of all the pleasures of sin or the comforts that are found in this life lord may our chief desire and delight be to know christ to grow in the grace and knowledge of him And so, Father, we pray that you might grant this to us. Lord, forgive us of our sluggishness. Lord, forgive us for so often being distracted, being enamored with the things of this world. And Lord, bring us back to our head, who is Christ. And Lord, we pray as well that very soon we might see him face to face. Lord, that we might be known and we might know him even as we have been fully known. So Lord, continue to teach and to instruct your people. And Lord, we pray that you continue to give to us the pearl of great price. Lord, this hidden treasure, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his precious name that we pray. Amen.